0: Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll be if you have your Bibles and want to turn there. Let me start off taking a moment to kind of talk to you about my heart going into what is a difficult topic and difficult sermon. Let me tell you about my, what I'm trying to be intentional in my tone and the approach of how I'm trying to bring this and why. The issue today of gender and of sexuality is a hot topic in our culture. It has been for some time now, and it is not going away anytime soon. These issues have been very politicized, which honestly makes me more hesitant to speak on them. However, the Bible speaks clearly and spoke first, uh, and so We want to speak to these issues because of that. Because the Bible speaks to them, I felt like we as a church need to be reminded uh, and have clear biblical teaching and understanding to how to think biblically about these issues and not politically about them. Many of you in this room have friends, uh, you have maybe children or grandchildren or cousins or aunt or uncle, or someone in your life who has gone through or who is in the midst of an LGBTQ lifestyle. And so I know a sermon like this is going to be particularly hard for you. I know that there are some people in this room who maybe yourself struggle with these issues personally. So my heart this morning is not to come yelling at you to tell you what God says is right, My goal is not to hoop and holler like some preacher on the side of the road. (laughs) And who's probably going to hear that clip and yell at me again on YouTube. That's happened already once. But I want to respond and speak on these issues in the same way that I hope you will in turn turn around and speak about them to those whom you love and who are struggling with these things. I want to speak on these things with love patience, with compassion and grace, while at the same time being unwavering and planted in the truth of God's word. That's what the Bible calls us to do. The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. That's my goal today, to lovingly and kindly speak unwaveringly the truth of God's word. With that said, turn to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 5. We're going to do 5 through 7, then we're going to skip a little bit and go 18 through 25. Let's hear the words of God. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. A few years ago on Black Friday, I decided it was finally time to upgrade my TV. I had had the same 42-inch TV that I had in my college dorm room, and we'd been married for about six, seven years at that point, and and I thought, the time has come. And so I started researching, finding all the best deals, knowing if I wanted 4K or not and well, HDR and all those things. And uh, my wife relented, and I went and got the biggest TV that she would allow me to buy, which is not the biggest I would have bought, but the biggest she would allow me to buy. I hung it up, and it was beautiful. It was clear. It was crisp. It was, it was awesome. It was the future right there. Uh, and, and Kate was like, yeah, whatever. It's fine. Uh, uh, Kate comes from a family who does not have TVs in their living room. And so I'm just ha- grateful for that. Uh, a, a year or so later, Kate began to get headaches uh, kind of later in the day. And we thought maybe it was because her eyes were straining and she needed glasses potentially. And so she went to the eye doctor and it turned out she didn't need glasses. Um, and so she got glasses and uh, that was all great. And one day after she got her glasses in, we sat down one night to watch a show. And she looked at the TV and she said, Whoa, this thing does look great. It's so clear, it's so sharp. I was wondering why we paid so much money for a TV that didn't look any better than our old one. The problem wasn't the TV, the problem was her. And her weak eyes. And I can say that because she's not in here to defend herself. That doesn't just apply to TVs, it's true Of the world we live in. You see, the world we live in is broken. It is upside down. It's distorted. But we get so used to the way the world is that we begin to think the world's just blurry. We begin to think the world is just the way it is and this is how it's supposed to be. But it's not. But what happens is we become like my wife, Kate, looking at a TV through weak eyes, thinking it's normal for it to be blurry. And the only way to realize the blurriness, the only way to realize that the world is actually upside down, the only way to realize that things are actually not supposed to be this way is to see it through the right glasses. To see it as it was meant to be seen. In the same way, the longer we live in this world without the right glasses, the more we will think the world is supposed to be this way. But what we do every week that we gather in this room is open the Word of God, and try to put on biblical glasses, try to put on gospel glasses to remind ourselves, no, this is how the world is supposed to be. No, this is the truth. No, everything else is upside down, and we've got to turn it right side up. Our Bible glasses, our gospel glasses show us reality, show us what is broken and how things should be, so that we don't grow accustomed to it. The Bible talks about how we are to renew our minds, and this is what we do every week. And that's what we want to do this morning. So we really have two main points. We're going to look at gender, and then marriage and sexuality. And under each of those, we're going to look at them under three headings, okay? We're going to talk about God's clear design for that thing, humanity's distortion of that thing, and then how do we live clearly, how do we live out God's clear design in this distorted world? So first, gender. Gender. God's clear design is this. He made us male and female. We just read Genesis chapter 2, and in it we see this intimate picture of God designing and creating humanity. And when he does, he doesn't just speak man into existence like he did everything else, but he takes from the dirt of the ground. He gets down on his knees and he forms and fashions this man. It's a picture of this builder forming something with his bare hands. So we have this intimate picture of God. And he's not just throwing something up against the wall and throwing mud up against the wall, seeing what's going to stick. But he gets down and he forms. And he forms particularly and intentionally and specifically a man. He forms his biology his outward parts, he forms his physique and everything about him, and then he blows through his nose the breath of life. He gives him life like no other creature has life. This man made, is made in the image of God like nothing else is, and then God names him. And then Adam names all the animals, and he quickly realizes that all the animals have a companion, have a helper, have a partner Someone like them, but a little different, but yet he is alone. And so, realizing this, God removes a rib from Adam. Now notice he doesn't remove part of his foot or part of his pinky toe, but rather he takes it from Adam's side to communicate equality. That this woman that he's creating isn't his servant or inferior to him, but is his equal. And like Adam, this woman is created in the image of God. And so we see the image of God is present both in Adam and in Eve, but yet there are unique aspects of that image in Adam, and there are different unique aspects of that image in Eve. They are equal, but they're not the same. They're different physiologically, biologically, emotionally. They image God equally, but yet differently. They're like two puzzle pieces that by themselves, yes, they image God, but together together create a fuller, clearer, more perfect picture of who God is. It's not always easy to bring out the differences in men and women, especially in the particular individuals, but in general, it's much easier to think about. We can talk about men who image God often, how we're bigger and stronger and can function like protectors and providers, like God does, right? We can talk about women who are often more nurturing and caring the way that God is more nurturing and caring of us. Men are unique and are designed and are intentionally made specifically, and manhood is a beautiful thing. Women are unique intentionally made specifically, and womanhood is a beautiful thing. The world would be a far worse place without men and it would be a far worse place without women. I love the little girl from the Western True Grit when she says, if it weren't for women, men would live like Billy Goats, and that is true. You can amen that. So we believe the Bible is super clear on this issue, that God makes, he designs, he fashions men and women who are equal but different. They complement one another. We believe this on one hand because it's clear and evident through nature, through what we call general revelation. We see it in the world. But we also believe specifically and earnestly because God has revealed it to us in Scripture, and that's our final authority. But the world has been broken by sin, and because of that, everything is fuzzy and distorted and blurry. And so humanity distorts, changes, perverts God's clear and good design. So let's talk about humanity's distortion. They distort it by saying gender is a human invention, gender is a human invention. What that means is that gender for the world is not something that God gives intentionally and specifically, but it is something that humanity has simply made up. There's this new thought that our biological sex and our gender are not the same thing or that they don't always line up. That gender can be disconnected from biological sex, that you might have female parts but on the inside you're a man or you're more masculine or you're somewhere in the middle and so we now have people who feel internally that they are more masculine or more feminine and so they feel like they cannot be happy until they fix this identity problem So they change their name they change their pronouns they change the way they dress they change their hair maybe they even have surgery to align their external parts to align more with how they feel internally the distortion is that they think gender is something that can change it's something that is fluid something that is internal instead of something that was assigned to you by your creator and designer part of the reason We've gotten to this place, and part of the uh, problem is cultural stereotypes around gender. As a culture, we have said that certain activities are for boys and other activities are for girls. We have done that merely culturally, and it has nothing to do with the Bible. We've talked about manhood and womanhood completely divorced from the Bible. And when you do that, when you say things like, you know, boys like to play with trucks and girls like to play with Barbies, what happens is when you get a little girl who wants to play with trucks or climb trees or get dirty or play football, they begin to believe the cultural narrative that says, well, maybe they're not a girl. When you have a little boy who likes to paint and he likes to draw and he likes to sing and he likes to do these things, you say, well, you know, he's not really a boy boy. These stereotypes are misguided and unhelpful. Men who do not like to go shoot guns are no less manly for not liking to shoot guns. Women who work or who are MMA fighters are no less feminine because they could kick the crap out of you. Activities and hobbies and enjoying different things has absolutely nothing to do with what makes you masculine or feminine, a man or a woman. The notion that gender is fluid, that you can change your gender or that you can be whichever gender you want, or that there's more than two genders is a complete and utter rejection of God's good design. It is a human invention and distortion. So how are we as Christians supposed to live in this upside-down distorted world? How do we live in light of God's clear design in a world that seems to have gone mad with this? The first thing is we approach it with compassion. The enemy wants to destroy people's identity so that they will not understand who they are and therefore will not fulfill all that God has for them. Let me say that again. The enemy, the devil, wants to destroy people's identity so that they will not understand who they are and therefore will not fulfill all God has for them. Do not be fooled. Like every sin, the idea that you are not the gender God made you is a lie from the enemy meant to destroy you. And like every other sin, this one promises happiness. It promises that if you could only get your outside to match how you feel on the inside, you would be happy. If you could be how you feel, you would be happy. But it only offers temporary happiness. But like all sin, it slowly rots and destroys you. So when we engage and approach and have conversations with people, who have what used to be called gender dysphoria, and who are transitioning, it is not our calling to go and mock them. It is not our calling to go and belittle them. It is not our calling to take cheap shots at them. We should have pity on them. We should have compassion toward them, and we should pray for them, because they have fallen prey to the enemy's deceit, that they'll only be happy if they're inside or if they're outside, will match their inside, and they need our compassion. Number two, while we engage with compassion, we must also engage with conviction. The Bible tells us, speak the truth in love. So though we must always engage with compassion with a tender heart, that does not mean we lose our convictions. Love or compassion without truth is just sentimental feelings and is it actually love it is not loving to let someone do something that is damaging to themselves and stand back and say or do nothing we know that god's design is uh, is not meant to hamper you it is meant for your good and we know that people who believe they belong to a different gender are hurting and they're broken We've been deceived by the enemy, and so they need our love, they need our compassion, but at the right time, and in the right way, and in the right approach, they need, with wisdom and discernment, they need us to speak the truth. So you have to answer questions like, am I going to use their preferred pronouns, or am I going to try to avoid that and use their name or generic terms? It's not my job this morning to bind your conscience one way or the other. That's a complicated issue, but you've got to think about that. How do you approach that issue with both compassion and conviction? We have to be able and love to tell people that God did not make a mistake with you. That God did not mess up. That he never makes mistakes. That you are not going to be more happy if you transition. It doesn't mean that you have to go and be super girly girly. It doesn't mean you got to go be a macho man and shoot guns and ride trucks. The world says change your outside to match your inside. And we wanted to tell people That God doesn't make mistakes. Your outside is exactly as it should be. And let's work to make your inside match your outside, not the other way around. And so we want to engage with compassion and conviction. Number three, we have to teach our children. Understand something. And this is true on all levels, really. The world is discipling your children right now. Every single day, the world is discipling your children. It is discipling them away from the values and morals, beliefs and convictions that you hold dear, and it is discipling them toward what the world holds dear. And if you do not counter those forces, your children will be left to fend for themselves alone, in a world gone crazy. So you need to be informed on things like what exactly is the school teaching your kids when it comes to sex education. You need to know the content and choose whether or not they should receive that instruction. But more than that, you need to know what are your kids consuming from their friends and online. The internet is a trash heap of every loony idea you can imagine. And they can stumble upon those things easily without even looking. They can come across inappropriate content and all kinds of worldviews and ideologies subtly mixed in there. Or right in your face without looking. And yet they still will go look because they're curious. They'll seek it out. And so if your kids have TikTok, if they have YouTube, Instagram or just their friends, they are hearing and are communicating and listening to ideas about what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable and what is not, what will make you happy, what sexuality is. They are hearing and consuming all of these things, and if you are not engaging with them, and if you're not doing a lot of listening, to them and what they are saying and what they are hearing, you will not be able to combat the false ideologies and ideas that they are being bombarded with every single day. So teach your children. Okay, we've talked about gender. Let's talk about marriage and sexuality. God's clear design is this. God invented sex to be experienced exclusively within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman for the purpose of pleasure and procreation. There's a long definition for you. We go back to Genesis chapter 2 and we find Adam lonely, that there was no one like him. And so God makes this woman to be his helper, to be his partner. And how does Adam respond? He breaks out into song. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He meets Eve and he breaks out into song because he finally has someone like him, a helper, a mate, a partner. She's not an identical copy. She's different. But they're like two puzzle pieces that come together. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here at the beginning we have God creating the model for what human sexuality should look like. And it's repeated throughout the Bible. It's repeated in the New Testament. So this isn't just a Genesis thing. But even if it was, that's enough. And the model is two individuals, one man, one woman, becoming one flesh through the covenant of marriage. God creates this covenant for two main reasons. For pleasure, God made them naked and said, y'all have fun. I'll catch you later. For pleasure, But also for procreation. He commands them to be fruitful and multiply. And the only way that happens is through intimacy. So that's God's clear design. Sex inside of marriage between a man and a woman for the purpose of pleasure and procreation. So that's the design. What's the distortion? The distortion at its root is this. If it makes me happy, it's good. That's the lie of our culture. That's the lie of the world. That's the distortion. If it makes me happy, it's good. It's the great deception, the great lie that we in all, many areas are all tempted to believe. That if something in the moment makes me happy, it must be good. Because if it wasn't good, we think, it shouldn't have made me happy. If it wasn't good, it wouldn't have made me happy. But this is not the case almost every night I have a battle I look in the refrigerator I look in the pantry and I see a stack of Oreos and a gallon of milk and it's midnight and I know I know I shouldn't do it sometimes there's a big gallon of ice cream down there and I know that a couple hours earlier I've been fine but right now it's not good but, but I fail a lot and I'll go and I'll have about 10 Oreos and a glass of milk and it will hit the spot boy it'll be good come on Come on. But when I wake up in the morning, oh, oh, I feel like death. And I know that, and yet the next day I'm like, huh, might be worth it. (laughs) Temporary happiness does not mean that the thing is good morally or it's good for me. But the world believes the mantra that love is love. And if I'm in love, it must mean, if I'm in love, it makes me happy, which must mean that it's good. No one else should be able to tell me I can or can't do something because love is love, and if it makes me happy, it's good. Now, there are all sorts of ways this works its way in our life, and we're just going to talk about the, the sexual ways. And every one of us in this room, hear me, every one of us in this room is sexually broken in one way or the other. All sorts of desires uh, that we have or we act on or don't act on, we are sexually broken one way or another. And at the root of every distortion is this belief that our desires trump God's design. That our desires are more important or should take precedent or come first over God's design. Because we think that because I have the desire to do something that it will make me happy. And so we reject God's design and go for our desires And we forget that our desires are broken and fallen and messed up. And the idea is that if I can get my desires, they'll be good and I'll be happy. So I'm just going to list a couple of the ways that this takes form, a couple of the distortions we see about this. Number one, sex outside of the covenant of marriage is a distortion against God's design for your good. What it does is it moves sex outside of a covenant, outside of the protection and provision and safety of that covenant, and makes two people one, one flesh, who are not one in every other way that matters. And while it is satisfying for the moment, it creates more problems and hurt down the road because they are one in one way, but very much two in every other way. And the great lie of the enemy and of the culture is, the more the better that sex is just a physical act and nothing more and so hook up have it enjoy it it's great but this is this is a distortion against God's design number two it's a distortion against God's design uh when we when uh, polygamy is a distortion of God's design now you might think this is not really a problem for me uh one wife is enough But this is a problem in many parts of the world. People say, um, uh, people will tell me, hey Brent, you know, polygamy is in the Bible, right? How's it wrong when polygamy is in the Bible? Which I'll say, yes, polygamy is in the Bible. But everywhere it's portrayed, it goes really poorly. It goes really bad. And it's a distortion against God's design. Number three, we see God's design distorted through divorce. Covenants are meant to be forever. They are meant never to be broken. God's designs for a man and a woman to leave their family and to cleave to their spouse, to make a new family that is one flesh, one new person made together. It's meant to create a safe, prospering, sanctifying environment for you both where you learn from one another, serve one another, care for one another, fight over silly things, and grow and be sanctified through that process. And just so you all know, the toll paper does go over the top. So if you need to be sanctified in that, be please be. This covenant is meant to be forever. But chick flicks have trained us the opposite way. The chick fl- you know, we're, we're all upset right now. Everybody's upset about all the movies coming out with homosexual agendas and, and that's a problem. But this has been going on for a long time and we've, we've ignored it. We've ignored all the hookup culture and the sleeping around and all the things in movies. That wasn't a problem for us. But chick flicks have trained us. In the divorce culture. They've trained us to think that when the girl is with some scumbag who who doesn't see her, he doesn't know her, and he doesn't appreciate her, and he, he doesn't know how beautiful she is, and doesn't he doesn't know how smart she is, how great she is. And then some other guy comes along, and he's cute and quirky, and you know, he notices her, he appreciates her, he defends her, he fights for her. What do we do? We root for her to leave the scumbag, divorce the scumbag, and get with this guy. We root for the affair, we root for the divorce, and we do it without even realizing what we're doing. And we have this belief, right? It's led to this belief in us in our culture without us even realizing it, that, man, if, if, if we, we can fall out of love, we can fall out of love, and if we could just have this, we'd have this picture in our mind. If I could just have a woman like this, or just have a man like that, then I'd be happy. We believe that lie, and we embrace the distortion, whether through divorce or adultery, that I'll be happy on the other side of the, the river. Number four God's designs get distorted through homosexuality. Not only does God clearly tell us homosexuality is a sin, but nature tells us as well. Romans 1 and 2 tell us that sin in particular is in, in particular rebellion against God's design. That it is not just a matter of improper timing and order like sex before marriage is, right? Like sex, sex is good. It's a good, godly, created thing. But when we have sex before marriage, we just got the timing wrong, right? And we got the order of events wrong. Homosexuality is a rejection, a complete rejection of the plans and designs of the creator. All of these... Are distortions. All of these are rejections of God's design and intention. And we believe God's designs are not meant to restrict us, but they are meant to be the trellis on which our life can grow, and the path to which we can find true fulfillment and happiness. The restrictions are meant for our good, our prospering, and our joy. They're not meant to hurt us, they're meant for our good. We believe that all the distortions on God are of God's design bring temporary pleasure. They do. They promise happiness and they bring temporary happiness, happiness, but they ultimately destroy our lives. So how do we live clearly in this distorted world? How do we live clearly, live out God's clear design in a world that has embraced hookup culture, has embraced living together before you're married, has embraced divorce culture, has embraced homosexuality and the LGBTQ agenda? couple things. One, remember that God has the right to tell us what to do with our bodies. God has the right to tell us what to do with our bodies. You see, the world believes the mantra, my body, my choice. But we do not think that these bodies are exclusively ours, that we are rather stewards of these bodies our li- and of our lives. And if you are a Christian in particular, the scriptures, scriptures tell us that we are bought with a price and we are not our own. I do not have the right to do with my body as I see fit. And when I do, when I do with my body as I see fit against God, it is treason and an offense against him, against the creator and designer who determined and designed our bodies and how they are supposed to work and operate. We do not stand on our own thoughts or our own reason. We stand on the words of God, the words of the creator, and we must stand firm on issues of hookup culture, of, of, of divorce, of living together before you are married, of LGBTQ issues. I read recently, 80% of people who are 35 years old and younger affirm same-sex marriage. And they say that if you want to stay with the times and relevant, you must too. And to that, we must say, God has spoken. Here I stand. And I can do no other. I'm going to stand firm. Two. You can love sinners without affirming their choices. You see, we have the humanity has this identity crisis. We've always had it, but it's really out front and center right now. We are all running around trying to figure out, who are we? Who am I? And we are defined, uh, and we make our identity, we are defined by what we make, place our identity in. We place it in relationships, and in sports, and in money, and in power, and beauty, and so many other things, and none of them. Are actually who you are you are not those things you are not your successes and you are not your failures either but there is this big movement to place your identity within your sexuality so much so that to them to reject someone's sexuality to reject it as good and their view is to reject them to not affirm them they would say is to not love them that's the mantra We must not fall into this trap. We must do. It's on our shoulders. It's on us to do the hard work of communicating clearly and sincerely that we believe our friends and our loved ones, their actions, particularly those of same-sex attraction, are wrong and are harmful. And not just that they are wrong, but they're going to destroy their lives. But even though we believe them to be doing something wrong, it does not waver us one bit on our love and our affection and our care for them. We are ferociously committed to them, to their good, to love them with all of our heart, while at the same time rejecting their view and practice of this thing. We can do both of those things together. Even when they say we can't, and it is on us to do the hard work of convincing them we can they, like us, are all on a happiness quest. And deep down, they have believed a lie that the enemy, that, that, that this relationship will make them happy. So here's an action step. We need to pray that God, for, for those friends, those family members, for those loved ones, for those in your life who have embraced this erroneous relationship, pray that God would drain the joy from that relationship that he would remove every ounce and trace of happiness in these sinful relationships in order to wake them up to the reality that those things will not satisfy them, that those relationships will not make them happy, and that only God can. Pray that God would remove the joy that they promise and offer, that who you sleep with does not define who you are, and who you sleep with will never make you happy. We have to do the hard work of loving without affirming. And hear me clearly. There are some of you in here today, and you are one close relationship away from being same-sex affirming. You are one child, one grandchild, or one close friend away from forsaking the Scriptures and embracing that homosexuality is good. Some of you in this room want to hold the truth, but don't know how to hold the truth while you also have this person in your life who's rejected the truth. You have to do everything in your power, everything in your power to fight, to keep that relationship, to communicate your love and your care for that person without compromising on the truth in order to do so. So that means you don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to preach at people every time you see them. But you can't compromise because they need someone in their life who is the light, who's the lighthouse pointing them back to the truth so that when the time is right, you can navigate them back to the Lord. Number three, we have to tell the truth. We have to tell the truth. A good friend of mine's brother um, a couple years ago uh, married another man and has rejected his, his upbringing, rejected the Christianity, rejected the faith. And his mom, obviously grieved by this and having a hard time with this, went to her pastor to ask him, uh, you know, uh, this question. She said, you know, he, when he was, you know, a little kid, came up and prayed a prayer of EBS and, and, and got saved and baptized. And uh, But now he's married to another man and he's rejected Jesus. And is he going to heaven? And the pastor looked at her and told her, if he was sincere when he prayed that prayer, then yes, he's going to heaven. And my buddy he was talking to, he said, man, this, this bro who's also a pastor, broke his heart. Because he wished that this pastor would have said, no. No, if he has rejected Jesus and is living in unrepentant sin, he has proven to never be a believer. Unless one day he does repent, then maybe he's proven just to be wayward. But he's proven not to be a believer and so has no assurance that he's saved. This matters because instead of this mother holding out false hope, she could be praying for her son's conversion instead of believing and holding on to this thread of a lie. Matthew chapter 18 lays out this process for us, and this may be helpful as we think through this. Matthew 18 lays out this process where when someone is caught in sin, a brother or sister, what happens? A brother or sister goes to them and says, hey, what you're doing is wrong. You need to repent. You need to turn from this. Run to Jesus, experience forgiveness, and turn from this. And if they refuse, Matthew 18 says, to to take some other people with you and, and say, call them to repentance. Say, stop doing this. Stop whatever it is. Stop doing this. Turn to Jesus. Stop living this way. And if they, re- they refuse, you bring some more people. And if over a period of time they continually refuse and, can- and start saying, No, I'm not going to stop doing this, sin. I think this sin is good, and it's who I am, and it's what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to stop, then eventually Matthew 18 says, You bring them before the church, and you treat them like an unbeliever. And that's not harsh, that's loving. Because the harsh thing to do is to look at somebody who's clearly not regenerate, clearly does not belong to Jesus, and give them the false hope that they do. The loving thing to do is to say, we love you, but you don't belong to the Lord. At least there's no evidence to say that you do. And we're going to treat you like you don't in hopes that you come believe and we can restore you to our family. This is not because Christians have to be perfect. We certainly are not. We are all colossal failures. But the two marks of genuine conversion are faith in Jesus and repentance of sin. And if there is no repentance, then there is no genuine faith. 1 John reminds us that if we say we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. Will there be same-sex attracted people in heaven? Absolutely. Without question, without a doubt. There will be people who struggle with same-sex attraction in heaven. They are our brothers and our sisters. Are there people in heaven who have any sin issue, that they embrace, do not repent of, call it good and embrace it? No, there will not. Apart from faith and repentance, there is no forgiveness. And let me be clear by repentance. I don't mean that by repentance, I never fail again. I've turned from this thing and I've mastered it. No. But I mean that you look at your sin and you think, I I want to do this thing, but I hate it. I want this thing, but I hate it. I want this thing, but I don't want this thing. And there's a struggle in this fight. Man, those are the people to whom Jesus runs after. Those are the people whom Jesus wants to embrace. Not the people who think they got their whole life together. and Not the people who are running far from Jesus, but the people who are struggling and are hurting and are trying and are failing. To those people, the heart of Jesus goes after. Rosaria Butterfield was a queer studies professor at a university and she was writing an article on Christianity and she found a church to go to and wanted to talk to this pastor and the pastor welcomed her into her home or into his home and began to talk about their beliefs and and their view of homosexuality and 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 as she tells this story she talks about the respect and dignity that this pastor treated her with she says that he never made me feel like my homosexuality was my biggest problem but that all kinds of sin and brokenness in me was. He never preached at me. He kindly and graciously answered my questions and talked with me. And this struck up a friendship that lasted for years. And as they continued to talk about the Bible and Christianity, her life eventually changed. And she embraced Jesus. She quit her job as a queer studies professor. She broke up with her girlfriend. And she embraced Christianity and came to Jesus. Yelling and preaching down at people is not going to do any good. But taking the long game, loving, showing kindness and patience, listening, not treating them like uh, that one sin is their biggest problem over the other, but rather their lack of bowing their knees to Jesus as king is. So my hope is that you'll have the opportunity to speak the truth in love, to point them to a better way, a way of true joy and fulfillment, the likes of which they've never tasted. Finally, we have to work hard on making your marriage great so that it functions like a lighthouse guiding those around you out of stormy seas and back to the shores of God's good design. Husbands, listen to me. In Genesis chapter 3, when Eve takes the fruit and eats and she breaks the world, do you know who the Bible blames? Adam. Adam gets blamed because Adam was responsible for his family. And yet, he stood there next to Eve, passive, passive. Letting her lead instead of him. Doing nothing to stop and help his wife. Our greatest temptation as husbands is to be passive. To stand around while our wives make all the hard decisions, do all the raising of our children. They are the ones that get you out of bed and drag your butt to church. Don't let it be so. Your family needs a man who will lead. To take the lead in discipling your children. To take the lead in making your marriage great. Take the lead in loving and serving and caring for your wife and your family. Husbands and wives, work hard together to make your marriage great. So that those around you see it as a beacon of light of God's good design and say, man, I want that. You see, the one thing I did not say about marriage earlier is that its ultimate purpose is bigger than pleasure. Its ultimate purpose is bigger than procreation, and it's bigger than the sanctification it provides. The main purpose of marriage is to serve as a pointer, an arrow. Our covenant marriage points to a greater covenant, a greater relationship than one God wants to have with us. God doesn't just want to be your king or creator or a God to you. He wants to be like a husband to you. The intimacy in marriage is but a pointer to what God has in store for you and him. And do you know why God hates divorce? Not because he just made up a random rule. He hates divorce because marriage points to our relationship with God and divorce says something that is untrue about God. That God is never unfaithful. That God never leaves us. That God will never fail us. That God will never fall out of love with us. That God will never have eyes for someone else. That he will never leave us, never forsake us, but through sickness and health, for all the days of our life, he will love us. And he proved that when he sent his son to the cross and he gave his life for his bride. He will never divorce you. He gives his life for you. And if you don't know that life-changing love, come taste it today. You may not realize this, but today is a monumental day in the history of the world that 60 years ago it was predicted that someone would be born today. That man was George Jetson. (laughs) The cartoon character from 60 years ago, in the show, was born on today. 60 years ago, cartoon creators envisioned the future. They saw flying cars and robot maids and video chatting on your watch. And they got some things right about the future. We're the present. But they got a lot of things wrong, too. We're not flying cars yet. But 60 years ago, they would have never seen coming or predicted that we would be living in a time Where we stopped using mom and started saying birthing person. Where we couldn't define what a woman is and where homosexuality was celebrated and parades in the street with kids participating. They would have never guessed that hookup culture and divorce culture and pornography would be hitting record breaking numbers every year. And yet here we are. I'd rather have the flying cars. So let's not live in fear. Let's not live into fear or despair about the world we live in because Jesus is on the throne. He is in full control. But as we live as followers of Jesus in this upside-down, distorted world, we have to move forward with conviction and compassion. We have to live in conviction based on what God's Word says, and we have to lead out with love and compassion. If we lead with compassion and conviction, slowly but surely, we will see many people's hearts and lives transformed by the power of the gospel. So let's lead church. Let's lead husbands and dads. Let's lead with compassion and conviction so that in the next 60 years we will leave a better world for our kids. A world that looks much closer to God's design, a world and a gospel that can actually produce the joy that we're all looking for. Let's pray. Father this morning we we look at something that's been around for a long time and we look at this these truths that um, have not changed and Uh, But yet today are harder to hear. Yet today are harder to hold to. Yet today are harder to hold to without losing friendships and loved ones. God, would you help make us a church that loves sinners? Because in every seat right now are a bunch of sinners. Father, help us to love people are struggling with sins that are different than the ones we struggle with. Father, help us to love people and have compassion on people who are doing these things that we don't understand and are bizarre to us. Help us to have conviction and compassion as we embrace them and love them and care for them, pointing them to their only hope. God, this is a really, really hard thing to do. But would you help us do it for the betterment of your kingdom and for the world and for those people that they might find the happiness they so desperately look for. We pray for these, pray these things in Jesus' name. All people said, let's stand and sing together.